I'd ask that you would open now to 1 John this morning. 1 John, and we are in chapter 4, and we've been in this series that we've entitled Living in the Light. And this study of living in the light out of 1 John has been teaching us what vital and vibrant Christianity look like. Uh, Living in the light, as we've been learning, isn't easy. Studying this book hasn't been easy. It challenges our thoughts and our expectations of what true Christianity looks like and what's a part of it. And as I began to think about uh, this idea of living in the light early on as we were putting this series together, I thought about the many obstacles and enemies that we have if we desire to live in the light. The issues of sin and and the world and all its enticements. Uh, The issue of false teachers and and even our own uh, inability at times to do as God has commanded are all obstacles to us living in the light. And yet today we're going to learn a great truth. A truth that I hope will encourage those who have been struggling through how to live in the light. And that is found in verse 4 of our chapter where it says, Greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. And the great solace that we have as believers is we are overcomers. We are victorious in this pursuit of pursuing Christ and living in the light because of the Holy Spirit that lives and resides within each and every one of us. And we're going to learn about how that overcoming takes place today amidst false teachers That because the Holy Spirit is greater than the spirits that are in the world, we have confidence that we uh, can know God and we can experience Him in a a great way. And so I'd ask that you would stand as we read from our text this morning, 1 John chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. This is what John tells us through the word of the Lord. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone into the world. This is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and even now is already in the world. You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them. Because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. They are from the world, and therefore they speak from the viewpoint of the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God, and whoever knows God listens to us. But whoever is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. Let's pray. Father God, we come into yet again another installment of this series that we find ourselves in in 1 John. And Lord, again, for the second time in this letter, we are reminded that the spirit of Antichrist is in the world. That Lord, even though you reign supreme, though your majesty is seen throughout creation and through the changed lives of your people, that we know that because of the forces of evil, because that which you have allowed to take place for a period of time, that many have been taken away from the truth. Lord, we know from 1 John that many had left the church that John was speaking to and had become false teachers. And so, Lord, we recognize that this is not a sanctuary 
uh, away from the religions of the world and the thoughts and practices that this world has. But Lord, even some of us have been led astray. Even some of us propagate doctrines and gospels that are against who you are. And so, Lord, I pray today that this message would challenge us in in some key ways. Father, that it would bring those who are being led astray back to your word. Oh, Father, we do pray, as Anne has just sung, that you would speak to us through your word. Lord, that it would challenge those of us who have, have allowed some of the world to creep in, whether it's through false religion or, Lord, just things that lead us away from you. Uh, that we would pursue you once again. Lord, I also pray for those who are of the Spirit. Lord, those who have bowed the knee to Jesus Christ, who continually desire to live for you, though imperfect, uh, that our hope is that we will overcome. Lord, give us that assurance that we are overcomers, that we have overcome and we are victorious. Lord, let us live in light while we abide in the Spirit that you are greater than anything that is in the world. Oh, Father, that we would be a victorious people that would leave this place because of what you have taught us and because of who is in us, that we would be able to take on anything that would teach or proclaim something else than you and you crucified. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you especially for 1 John chapter 4, and I ask that you would speak through me so that the people of God may be edified. In Christ's name we pray, and all God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. In 1848, a Greek word became the slogan in all of the continental United States. The word would become a motto that would capture the very heart of all those who were seeking a new life and a new type of richness. And this Greek word literally was the word eureka. Eureka in the Greek literally means I have found it. It is something that you would say if you were looking for something of value in your home that you could not find. Uh, You would cry out this Greek word eureka. I've got it. I've found it. And in 1848, this word became a part of our vernacular Because what it was being used for was for those that were looking for riches in California. And in 1848, when gold was discovered in vast quantities, uh, this word would be used over and over again. And the frequency of hearing Eureka in California would lead then to the 49ers, not the football team, but the hundreds of people that would go out looking for the prospect of riches in the form of gold. And so people would go and they would pursue California and all the riches that were there, but a problem would soon ensue. And that was that not everyone who yelled Eureka had really found gold. Not all those who had thought that they had found something of great value had found anything, really. Because when they would yell Eureka, usually some of the newer individuals to the prospecting uh, industry Uh, They would think that they had found gold, and in fact, they found what was called iron pyrite. It's a hard metal that has all the looks of gold, and it soon would be called fool's gold. Because it glittered, it meant that it was gold, right? Because it had the uh, exterior look of gold, it must be that which it says it is. 
But what was learned was is that when they began to find out that this pyrite was found in all areas of California, it looked like it, that tests then needed to be done. And there were two tests that the prospectors would do to find out, is it fool's gold or real gold? The first one is, is gold is, uh, real gold is uh, relatively soft. It's something that you could uh, create an indentation in with your teeth. Our surface, our enamel of our teeth are stronger uh, than that of gold. And so when a prospector would find a nugget of gold or, or pyrite, the first thing they would do is bite into it. Because pyrite was very hard, it would not indent into the material, uh, but gold would. And so the first test was to see uh, if you could bite into it. The second one was a test of scratching it on a surface like uh, ceramic or some other hard surface. Now, gold would leave a yellowish tinge as you would scratch it. Again, because of its softness, it would be able to leave a trail of yellow to it. Pyrite would leave a greenish-black, or blackish-green, however you would want to say it, uh, streak to it. And so these two tests were used to be able to teach people what was true and that which was false. Now, the reason why it was called fool's gold was because those uh, were people who did not know how to test things. And they would just cry out, I found it. I've got it. I've got the valued thing that I've been looking for. And the old prospectors would say, what a fool. They haven't done the test to know that what they hold in their hands is really worth nothing at all. Spiritually speaking, our churches are filled with people who pursue fool's gold when it comes to their faith and religion. For many people, without ever going to the test, uh, they read a book, they listen to a sermon, they, they hear someone talk, and they say, Eureka! This guy's great! I love what this guy has to say. He uses a lot of Scripture. He, he uh, has a great following. Do you look at the church that this guy has? There's a lot of great things happening. And instead of doing the test, we begin to put a value to say that they are of God. And yet what John is going to tell us this morning is just because it glitters doesn't make it God's. And so we as a people need to come up with a test. Because there's a lot of counterfeiting going on out there. It's true in John's day and it's true in our day today. And John gives us some tests that say, all right, just because it looks like gold doesn't mean it's gold. And this is how you can know for sure that what you're pursuing, what you're going after, in fact, is the valued thing that you've been looking for. And so notice what the text says. There are three things that I want to look at this morning. I want to apply as we understand the teaching about false teachers. The first thing that we must understand if we want to overcome uh, counterfeit Christianity is that we must uh, understand and we must know the problem that we face as Christians. The problem that we face as Christians. Now John begins this text, notice in verse 1 he says, Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Now, a couple things we need to address just very quickly here. First of all, when he speaks of spirit, we're not speaking about angels and demons per se. 
Now, now we do need to test if, if uh, we were to be a part of some uh, celestial involvement, that we can't just assume that if the angel looked pretty and uh, was full of light and dressed in white, uh, that we would uh, say that that is for sure an angel, because we know even the devil himself masquerades as an angel of light. But this is not what John is speaking about. What John is talking about when he talks about testing the spirits is testing that which comes from either God or the devil. That which we speak about on spiritual terms. And so there are physical people, physical teachers, who are teaching spiritual things that are either of God and those elect angels, or of the devil and his demons. And we need to test the spirits in that way. And so the first thing that we need to understand is that. Number two, we need to understand that when he speaks about this, he speaks to them with an affection that we must look at over and over again. John is a lover of these people. And he starts our passage by saying, dear friends. The reason why he's bringing this information out isn't just so that his people will have big heads and be intellectual giants, but the mere fact is that he is concerned about his friends and the people that he loves in the city of Ephesus. And he says to them, dear friends, I want to share something with you. I want to bring a concern of mine to you because you mean the world to me. The reason why we preach about false teachers, the reason why we talk at times about that which is contrary to the gospel isn't just so that we can here at Village Bible Church say, we've got the truth. But we do it because we understand and know that our friends and our loved ones are at stake. Their relationship with God or their relationship with that which is contrary to God is at stake. And John recognizes the people that are dearest to him could fall prey to the doctrines of false teachers. Now notice he says later on in verse 4, you dear children are from God. And so we need to recognize that John is not speaking to the false teachers, but he is addressing Christians. Now there are times in and out of this book, of this letter, where he addresses the false teachers. In fact, he doesn't just turn the page back if you need to, to 1 John uh, chapter uh, 1. He addresses what many commentators believe uh, are the statements uh, of the false teachers. Now notice what he says in verse 6. If we claim to have uh, fellowship with him, yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. He goes in verse 8. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth uh, is not in us. Verse 10. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word has no place in our lives. Notice what he says then in chapter 2. The man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar and the truth is not in him. These are statements that John is giving that he's heard the false teachers say. That you can have fellowship with God and live in darkness. And he says, a man can't say that. And so he addresses all throughout the first part of the letter the ideas that the false teachers were speaking about. And he addresses them. But in chapter 4, he's dealing with the believer. And he's articulating to his friends, the children of God, how they ought to operate and test to know what is going on. In chapter 4, once again, John articulates an alarm be careful. Be careful. How careful are you this morning about your faith? When was the last time you thought that your faith may be under fire? 
That as you walk out of this place and into the world, that you recognize you're in a battle. And that you have to be careful, that your eyes have to be open, your ears have to be ready to hear the messages so that you may uh, be able to distinguish between that which is good and that which is evil. John says, be careful. The world we live in is being led by the spirit of Antichrist, which you've heard is coming, he says in in verse 3, but now is already in the world. Folks, we are fighting the spirit of Antichrist this morning. And so we need to be ready. We need to be prepared. But the problem is, many of us as Christians are like those who were at Pearl Harbor on December 6, 1941. Uh, We recognize uh, that, look around, everything is great, and little do we know, just along the horizon is an enemy that is going to seek to destroy us. And that enemy may come uh, through a knock on the door, That enemy may come uh, through a popular book that we read that seems to have all the right answers. It may come through a flashy preacher uh, on TV with a big church. And we may fall and not even know it before it's too late. So John tells us again, there's false teachers in the world. Are you ready? Are you prepared for them? Some are even going to come from our own ranks. John said that they left us. They went out from us. These false teachers weren't people that came into the church, but they were in the church, and they were led astray, and now they were propagating their own doctrine. You may say, well, that wouldn't happen at Village Baloney. You don't think that there isn't some of us who, who could be led astray, who could begin to propagate different doctrines and try to lead others to that same standpoint? We must be very careful. Now, John wasn't the first to tell us about the spirit of Antichrist. We're going to go through a lot of Scripture this morning, and I'm going to, if you you have difficulty uh, keeping up, just write the passages down, and uh, we'll go from there. But the first thing I want us to look at is that this is spoken about throughout the Scriptures. First of all, turn to um, Deuteronomy 13, 1 through 5. Deuteronomy is at the beginning of the Bible, the fifth book of the Bible, written by Moses to the children of Israel. In Deuteronomy 13, verses 1 through 5, uh, this is what is articulated uh, by God's Word. It says this, starting in verse 1, If a prophet or one who foretells by dreams appears among you and announces to you a miraculous sign or wonder, and if a sign or wonder of which he has spoken takes place, and he says... Let us follow other gods, gods you have not known, and let us worship them. You must not listen to the words of that prophet or dreamer. The Lord your God is testing you to find out whether you love him with all your heart and with all your soul. It is the Lord your God you must follow, and him you must revere. Keep his commands and obey him, serve him and hold fast to him. That prophet or dreamer must be put to death. Because he preached rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. He has tried to turn you from the way the Lord your God commanded you to follow. You must purge the evil from among you. And so there's this idea that there were false teachers even in the day of Moses. Now, he's not the only one that speaks of it. Jesus himself shares about it in the book of Matthew. In the book of Matthew chapter 7 In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus articulates this truth about false teachers. In verse 15, Matthew chapter 7, verse 15 and 16, says the following. Jesus tells us, watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, 
but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Jesus says, hey, be aware that there are going to be those that look really good, but in fact are wolves that are seeking to destroy the flock of God. Now, Paul would address this in the New Testament church in the book of Acts. Just keep moving through the Bible in Acts chapter 20. Just a couple books beyond Matthew, we find the book of Acts chapter 20, and Paul is saying goodbye to the church that John is speaking to now, the church at Ephesus. The book of Ephesians is a letter to that church. Timothy, uh, I'm sorry, Paul started this church, and Timothy is given the job of maintaining and leading this church. And as Paul leaves, he has a farewell to the Ephesian elders, and he says in verse 27 through 31, he declares this, For I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. Why would he say that? Because he goes on in verse 29, I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Now notice what he says, even from your own number, meaning from your own group, people from your church will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. Paul says, be careful. There are going to be these lion or these wolves that will come and they will try to lead people away. Peter spoke about this as well. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1, he says the following. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1, but there were also false prophets among the people just as there will be false teachers among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought, them, who bought them, bringing swift judgment and destruction on themselves. Many will follow their shameful ways and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. In their greed, these teachers will exploit you with stories they've made up. Their condemnation has long been hanging over them and their de- destruction has not been sleeping. So Peter addresses this. And finally, one more verse that just to illustrate how important this issue is, the book of Jude, right before the book of Revelation, the book of Jude chapter 1, there's only one chapter in Jude, says this in Jude 1, 4. This is what he says. In fact, in verse 3, he gives the reason why he's writing it. And there's a, a change in the focus that he has in writing the book of Jude. He says, dear friends, Although I was eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt I had to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. Why, Jude? For certain men whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are godless men who change the grace of God into license for immorality, and they deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. Why must we be careful? Why must we be testing the spirits? Because over and over and over again, the Scriptures tell us that we can fall prey to false teachers. This is a major problem that we face as Christians. 
So what are we to do? What is our response amidst of this problem? The first thing is, is that we need to stop trusting everyone. Now, before you go, wait a minute, Tim, let me caveat that phrase. What I mean by that is we just can't assume that because a person looks like a Christian, smells like a Christian, acts like a Christian, talks like a Christian, doesn't mean that they are of God. Remember the gold. Just because it looks like gold, just because it glitters, just because it has some of the external elements that make fool's gold look like real gold, tests need to be done. And so we need to be careful that we don't just assume that everything we consume, everything that we're a part of, is is of God. And that means be careful that what you assume that is on Christian TV, just because it has the word Christian in front of it, doesn't make it from God. Don't assume everything that you hear on Christian radio is of God. Don't assume that just because they carry a Bible or they talk a lot about the Bible or use a lot of Bible verses that that makes them from God. There are some of us that need to be careful when we walk into a Christian bookstore because we look and we read books and we say, well, it must be Christian because it says Christian bookstore on the front of the sign. And yet, our text reminds us that we cannot just trust everyone. Now, what John is articulating is he's saying, be careful. Don't be gullible. These guys are clever. They're subtle. And I want you to understand that in my day, John is telling us, there were people that were false teachers because they spoke the truth and they said they had a walk with God and that they lived in the light when, in fact, they were children of the devil, lived in disobedience, and lived in darkness. And so the people were really struggling. How do we know whether these people are with us or against us? John says there needs to be a test. Notice the next thing. We need to stop trusting everyone. We need to be on guard at all times. And we need to also start testing everything. So we need to make sure that we don't just have this blind trust. We can trust uh, the teaching of those uh, that we have watched over a course of time. But remember, our trusting only goes as far as, and I want you to be able to trust me, but be careful that your trusting of me doesn't just assume some things on me, but like the Bereans who heard the Apostle Paul teach, they didn't just say, well, he's an apostle, he must be right. He, 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 he walked around, he had some cool revelations that happened with him as he journeyed through Arabia. He must be right. No, the Bereans in Acts 17 verses 10 and 11 say that they were more righteous than some of the other ones because they stopped and they began to test. And as they looked to the scriptures and understood the scriptures, they were then able to look to Paul and say, we trust you, not per se on the merits of your own teaching, but on the merits of what God's word says in its truth. And so we need to understand we can't trust everyone and we need to start testing everything. And so we need to recognize that even as Paul says, if an angel comes and proclaims a gospel that which is different than what the apostles have shared and contained in the canon of Holy Scripture, that we should not follow that angel. And that, in fact, anyone who comes and preaches a different doctrine uh, of, about Christ should be accursed. And so we need to be testing. 
We need to be asking the question, has the individual that is speaking before me right now, are you critiquing me, not hopefully on, on how my speech is and, and where my story's good or not, but the critiquing every time you hear a preacher should be, has that man studied to show himself approved unto God? Is he a workman? Tim doesn't need to be ashamed because he's rightly divided the word of truth. Are you able to do that with the teaching that I've articulated to you over these years? You need to be able to test, not just assume that everything is right. Now, before we move on from this point, there's something of great importance that we need to understand. Because when we start thinking about false teachers, we come up with in our mind what false teachers may look like. And I want to break this down just for a couple seconds here. Uh, And the first thing is, and I want you to write this, it's not in your outlines, but put it down. What John is speaking about when he speaks about us testing the false teachers, not believing every spirit, is that John is not talking about people that he has disagreements with. What John is not talking about is he's not saying uh, these false teachers are the ones that disagree with me on the color of the carpet in the sanctuary. They're false teachers. Be careful of those wolves. He's not saying that those who who maybe hold to um, a more contemporary style of worship, you know, hey, be careful of those guys who who, uh, play those uh, Matt Redman and Chris Tomlin songs, they're of the devil. He's not saying that, nor is, is he saying, young people, be careful of those people that want those hymns over and over again. Those are false teachers. Those are preferences in many ways. Those are things that we uh, enjoy that make us different from one another, that help us worship in different ways. But John isn't saying that these people are those that we just disagree with. Now, there are churches that I believe are good, solid, strong, Bible-believing churches that I don't agree with everything that they do. But those are disagreements. I can assure you that if many of them came to village and say, why are you doing this? Why? Why are you doing that? And we would disagree. That's the great thing about the priesthood of believers. We're different. And we've got a world to change that's filled with different types of people. But notice the other thing. John isn't talking about people who have a defective faith. Now, what I mean by defective is the following. All of us carry a level of defect in our faith. Now you say, wait a minute, I've been washed with the blood, I've been justified. Tim, how can you say that? Can you look me in the eye and say that everything you know and understand about God is correct? If you can, then I'm going to sit down and you can come up and preach. Because I know there's a lot in my theology, even as I continue to grow in it, that I'm not sure about. Paul says we look into a glass dimly. And so we need to understand that there are defects in what we understand about God. And as we mature, as we grow, as God teaches us and guides us into truth, uh, hopefully some of those things that we held to that were defective long ago will now move in maturity to bring us to a place of real truth and understanding. Uh, There's a lot of churches that I think I don't just disagree with them, But I believe as I look at the scriptures, as I look at how they go about discipleship and how they go about uh, uh, reaching out to the lost and how they uh, work to explain and articulate the gospel, in some ways is defective. But would I say that they're false teachers? Absolutely not. Because I wouldn't want anybody to look at some of the defects in my faith and say, you're a false teacher. 
And so be careful that when we interact with people, not only that we just don't disagree, that we disagree with, but we really struggle with some of their positions that we don't begin to say, well, they're false teachers. You may view an aspect of their theology as defective, but that doesn't make them what John is speaking of. What John is speaking about here is that which is destructive. That which is destructive. Notice the issue he brings up. He doesn't say, hey, this is the issue on communion, or this is the issue on uh, baptism, or this is the issue on uh, the speaking of tongues, or, or where we stand on when Jesus will come. Notice what he says. This is how you can recognize in verse 2 the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and even now is already in the world. What's the issue? It is the destruction of the core essentials of the Christian faith. And so what would we be speaking about? These people are the first century uh, version of our cults. I want you to write another thing down. There's a lot of notes this morning, and uh, this will help you. People ask me all the time, how do you know what is a cult and what's not? I want to give you a, a quick rule of thumb when it comes to cults, and it, it will make Al Gonerman very happy because it surrounds itself in the four elements of math. You want to know what a cult is? Then write this down. Number one, cults will usually uh, find themselves adding to the source of authority. They add to the source of authority. So when we look at cults, the first thing we have to look at is the person adding to authority. Now, they can do this in one of two ways. First of all, what they can do is they can add to Scripture. We have a church right down the street, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, that I believe is a cult. And one of the reasons why I believe it's a cult is, and they're going to hit every one of these things, but one of the big reasons why I do is because they say, yes, we believe in the King James Version of the Holy Scriptures, but we also hold up the Book of Mormon as at the same level as we do Scripture. And so whatever the Book of Mormon says, we have to view just as Scripture does. Just as we look at the book of the doctrines and the covenants and the pearl of great price, they have these added uh, sources of authority. That's a problem that we are going to have as Christians. The Bible says that we are to uh, listen to the words that have been articulated from the apostles and the prophets. But notice, they don't just add when it comes to written word, but the authority of uh, an individual or or a group of people. Most cults have a prominent leader uh, that has a level of authority that can speak the same as it comes uh, to the doctrine of the Holy Scriptures. And so what that means is that an individual, a, a person's writings, of course, in the Mormon faith, it was Joseph Smith and then subsequently after that, Brigham Young. Uh, In the uh, Jehovah's Witness faith, it was uh, Charles Russell Taze. And we could go on, uh, church uh, scientists, Scientology, all of these uh, different uh, false religions have uh, an individual who rises above as the supreme leader. And because of that, that's destructive. So they add to the source of authority. Number two, they subtract in some way to the Trinity. They subtract in some way to the Trinity. 
Now, we're going to talk in a moment about what John is dealing with per se, but when it comes to cults, we need to understand that usually where we differ with them is not on styles and forms of worship, not on uh, what our buildings are going to look like, but our understanding of Jesus Christ or the Godhead. Okay, so we need to understand some things. In some cults that we have in our midst, the two that are most popular in our world today, Jehovah's Witness believe that Jesus Christ was the first created being by God. We got a problem with that because if Jesus was created just like you and I, but he was, at the, he was the first guy down the assembly line of humanity, then he is not God. And if Jesus isn't God, then what are we worshiping? Another guy who's just like us? We can't believe that. And that breaks down the very structure. To be able to get that doctrine, Jehovah's Witness have to change the Gospel of John in chapter 1, where it tells us in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jehovah's Witness change their translation, go against the very aspect of all that they should know about Greek uh, translation, and they translate it this way. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God, small g. We got a problem. Jesus wasn't a God. He is God. He was God. And he always will be God. The problem we have with the church up the street is the reason why, or the, the reason why we have this issue with them isn't because we don't like that they mow their grass a certain way, different than how we do it. And, and, we, and I want to be careful. I don't want to come across too harsh in this response but they destroy what we understand about God. They tell us that God lives on some distant planet. This is Mormon theology. And he is married to some unknown woman. And in the celestial world, they're just having lots of fun, if you know what I mean, making babies all the time. And one of those babies that was born was a man named Jesus. And Jesus lived such a good life, pursuing knowledge and aspiring godliness, that he became like God. And he became a God. And as a result of that, when we follow Christ, we can become a God. I don't know about you, brothers and sisters, but this isn't small stuff. This is huge stuff that destroys the very fabric of our faith. If we don't build on the right foundation, none of what we are going to be able to see being built above that foundation will be straight. And so they subtract from some aspect of the Trinity. Number three, they multiply ways of salvation. They multiply ways of salvation. What that means is they say, hey, salvation isn't just by faith, uh, uh, by grace through faith, but you can find salvation in a lot of ways. Through works, you can find salvation through following the ways of a leader. You can find your salvation in many different ways by holding to the law of Moses. These are things that we have to be very careful with and we have to look through. Number four, uh, not only do they add and subtract and multiply in different aspects, but they divide family and friends from each other. Most cults, usually what will happen is you join a cult, and they will say you have to depart from all involvement with family and friends. And so these are some of the ways that we can understand what destructive ministries look like. And we need to be careful because they look really good. I, I debated whether or not to share this, and I talked with another elder, and he said, yeah, you know what, go ahead and share it. And, and I'll tell you, you say, well, that's outside of, of uh, Christianity, I'm sorry, that's outside of Village Bible Church. We, we don't deal with that. 
I want you to understand that uh, a couple elders have been uh, working with an individual that, that attends our church uh, pretty regularly, and, uh, and it's an issue that we had learned about some of their doctrine, and, and we asked some questions. And so they sent us out some books for us to read, and I've just finished the second of the books that they have, and at the end of the book, this is what it says. And here is the whole gist of the doctrine. The doctrine is is that the people that are called the children of Israel in the Bible really aren't the children of Israel, okay? And that the children of Israel really are the Celtic or the um, Anglo-Saxon people of Europe, okay? Because really that's where the dispersal sent the people, and and this this book is full of Scripture, full of Scripture that tries to uh, illustrate that point. And so as a result of that, we don't know who we are. And so your job as a person is to find out, especially if you're white, by the way, if you are a part of the real Israel, okay? Now you say, well, why does that matter? What is that all a part of? I want you to read this to you. After sharing about 15 verses from Scripture, this is what this writer says. Although these passages indicate that non-Israelites may entreat, praise, enjoy enjoin themselves to Yahweh, none of them nullify Yahweh's special and exclusive marital rights and relationship that he has with the real Israel. Furthermore, these scriptures do not annul the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the law, and the service of God, and the promises that belong to the nation of Israel listed in Romans 9, 3 through 5. So what does this mean? Non-Israelites who join themselves to Yahweh are simply proselytites to the covenants, that they belong to the Israelites, and they are therefore able to share in some of the salvation benefits. Let me keep going. These scriptures do not invalidate Yahweh's laws of segregation in our world. The gospel message proclaimed to all nations should incorporate all of Yahweh's moral laws, including those of, uh, concerning segregation of races and the mixing of races in marriage. Okay, we got a problem. This is destructive stuff. And so what that says is if you can't figure out if you're a real Israelite or not, don't start mixing in marriages. Make sure that you're segregated, which is raw and and just full-out racism, and ask the question and say, okay, but then it also tells me that it does not annul that the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the laws, and the service of God, and the promises that belong to them are listed only for the real people of Israel. Not even the nation of Israel, this guy would explain. Now that really, I struggle with that because then notice what John tells us. You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them, in verse 4 he says, because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. How do we know that? How do we know that the Spirit's living in us? Is it because of our birthright? I can assure you, and I had the conversation with the individual, I know I'm not Jewish. My dad's from Iraq. That takes care of that. I know I'm out of it. And so what do I do with this? Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him everything that we ask because we obey his commands and do what pleases him. This is the command. Believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he has commanded. Those who obey his commands live in him and he in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit that he gave us. Oh, Tim, John's not talking about stuff we need to hear about. This is stuff that your leaders are dealing with at different times because it's going to subtly come in. And so the individual would say, 
And I don't know if they're here tonight or today or not. But the individual would say, it's not really segregation or racism, but it's just that we're the chosen people of God and they're not. And they'd say it with a smile on their face. And I say, maybe what you're believing is what Paul tells Timothy to beware of. Endless genealogies. Be careful that you don't start making a roadmap to your Christianity because of where your mom, dad, and grandparents came from. But that Jew, Greek, free, slave, all because of the blood of Jesus Christ can atone for everyone's sins that in Revelation chapter 5, that from every tribe, tongue, and nation will be a part of the elect of God. Let's be careful. Now notice, i got to keep going here. Holy moly, let's keep going. Point number two this morning. The protocol of false teachers. What are they doing? The protocol. Again, John's situation is somewhat unique. We have to understand what he's dealing with and understand that uh, false teachers have a certain way about them. He says this is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. He says, every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, but every spirit that does not uh, acknowledge Jesus is not from God. And so the first thing we have to understand is there are four things that we see that, new, uh, that uh, false teachers do. First of all, they involve themselves in disclaiming Christ. They disclaim Christ. False teachers' attacks almost always center on who Jesus is. And this was true in John's day. Now notice there were two false teachings that I talked about early on in our study of this letter. The first false teaching was that called docetism. And docetism comes from the Greek word dokeo, which literally is translated, it seems. And the understanding of docetism is the idea that denied Jesus had come in the flesh, but that Jesus, in fact, was a phantom, that it seemed that he was in the likeness of a man, but he really was just some sort of ghost or hologram uh, that uh, the people were a part of. And so, yes, they saw this Jesus, but in essence, he wasn't really a man, but he was some a phantom or some figment of their imagination. Now, the problem with this is it denies the incarnation. It denies the virgin birth. It makes a sham of the perfection of Jesus because if Jesus is just some phantom, some hologram, he really didn't deal with temptation or deal with the issues that Satan brought before him. It destroys the Trinity because it creates a, a doctrine uh, that is true uh, for uh, some individuals uh, like uh, Bishop T.D. Jakes who believes in uh, modalism which believes that there's only one God and that that one God personifies himself in different modes. He can personify himself as the Holy Spirit. He can personify himself as the person of Jesus Christ. But only one God, not three persons. Uh, Moody Radio, you say, well, they wouldn't do anything wrong. Play over and over again. Just the other day I was listening, and a song came out on Moody Radio by the group Phillips, Craig, and Dean that will, without any question, denounce the Trinity and say that Jesus Christ is a mode of the, the person of God. That he really wasn't what he says he was. And yet, we hear on Moody Radio all the time songs by this great group. And they got wonderful music, if you want to hear from a musical standpoint. They're talented guys. But all three of them are pastors of the Oneness Pentecostal Church called the Jesus Only Church. 
This is true, and this is a part of our faith. They disclaim Jesus, and it's because of these issues of modalism and docetism. Now, the other one, of course, is uh, the idea that Jesus Christ uh, came in the flesh. They changed from the docetists, but that the Christ, meaning the, the Messiahship of Jesus, came at his baptism when the Father said, this is my Son, who, am, who I am well pleased, that Jesus wasn't the eternal Son of God, but he was God's vessel, and this is where Mormonism really comes out to play, is that he became like a God. So God is looking and saying, who's going to be my son? Who's going to be my spokesperson? Who will go for us, as Isaiah 6 says? And he looks down and he sees this young Nazarene boy. Oh, look at him. He's in my temple as a child. He, he's a part of all these great things. He's got a great mind. And all he wants to do is do the work of me that is in heaven. I'll make him my guy. And so then he puts the Christ label on him, and here's the problem then that goes on. It starts at the baptism, and it ends just as Jesus is going to hang on the cross. So who died for our sins? A mere man. You could hang me on the cross just as they did with Jesus, and it would be the same thing. Because a man's dying for a man. And yet we know that that isn't true. That the Scripture says that Jesus Christ is and was and always will be God. Now, why did they do this? Why did they disclaim Christ? Did they come up one day, got up in the morning and said, you know what, I want to be a heretic. I'm going to, I'm going to become a heretic. You know, I've tried everything else. Orthodoxy just doesn't work for me. I'm going to believe in false teaching. They do this to create an opportunity for new understandings of, of how they can live out their lives. Now, notice just very quickly, when it comes to Christ, this is of great importance. If you can flip the, the screen there, I've got uh, the Creed of Nicaea Hopefully on the, on the screen there. Is it coming up there, Krista? Where is it? There we go. This is what uh, the church said in 324 A.D. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, all, uh, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God. Now notice what they say. Eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light. True God from true God, begotten, not made, that's important, of, being, of one being with the Father, through him all things were made. For us in our salvation, he came down from heaven by the power of the Holy Spirit. He became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the Scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. Now notice what they put as an attachment. But those who say there was a time when he was not, and he was not before he was made, or he was made out of nothing, or he is of another substance or essence. Notice what they said in 324. Or that the Son of God is created or changeable or alterable, they are condemned by the Holy Catholic and Apostolic Church. The church said, You mess with Jesus and you're out of here. You can't say any of those things. And since that time of the writing of the, of the apostles, we have to hold Christ and believe what the scriptures say of him. Second, these guys disregard truth. Just very quickly, these things aren't in the text, but it's important. They disregard truth. What would cause the false teachers to depart such critical doctrines? Paul tells us. Write this passage down, 2 Timothy 
2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. The Spirit clearly tells us that in latter days, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits that are taught by demons. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars and whose consciences who have been seared with a hot fire. They forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods which God has created to receive with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Why do they do it? They put, they put away sound doctrine. Now notice the text goes on in 2 Timothy, uh, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, it says this, It tells us in verse 3 and 4, For the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, what will they do? They will suit their own desires and they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want them to hear. The reason why these people denounce Christ and start pursuing uh, false teaching is because they say, You know what? I don't want to live by the truth of God. I want to do it my way. I want to have the ability to do as I would desire. Number three, they disobey God's commands. When those desires come up that are contrary to Scripture, a person has a response. And that response is either to submit themselves to the teaching of Scripture and to follow its ways, or it can say the following. It can say, instead of doing what God has taught me, I'm going to disobey God's commands and I'm going to do what I want. Folks, we're seeing this in churches all over the place. We see it in how we deal with our sexuality. We deal with how we understand our ethics, our use of money, our view on people, and even in our politics. False teachers say, live for what you want, not what God's word says. It's more important what I think about a particular command of God's instead of what God's word says. Notice the next thing. It damages the faith of others. It damages the faith of others. The text tells us in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 17 and 18, what happens to these people? It says in verse 17 and 18, their teaching will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have wandered away from the truth. They say the resurrection has already taken place, and they destroy the faith of some. You know what happens when we start propagating these doctrines? We will start leading people astray. And in doing so, we damage the faith of those around us. Four ways that we can look at how false teachers operate. And the question is, are you ready to deal with these things? When a person comes to your door and disclaims Christ, are you able to deal with that? When your friend says, I can live however I want and disobey God's commands and try to find a way to get Scripture to agree with them, are you able to refute those things? Are you able to help those whose faith has been damaged? If not, then it's time you get into God's Word. One final thing, and I'll keep it short, and that is, well, how do we discern on an ongoing basis? It involves a practice that enables our faithfulness. It involves a practice. Notice what the text says. In uh, in 1 John chapter 4, it says, You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. They are from the world and therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world and the world listens to them. We are from God and whoever knows God listens to us, but whoever is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we recognize the spirit of truth from the spirit of falsehood. There are three things very quickly that our practice should involve. First of all, it involves remembering who is in you. You want to keep away from false teaching? You want to make sure you're ready for that false teacher that comes? How do you do it? By remembering that the Holy Spirit lives in you. 
He lives in you, and he will guide you, and he will lead you to all truth. If you are a true child of God, I love what 2 Thessalonians tells us. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9 tells us that as true children of the Lord, we don't have to be concerned whether we'll fall to these things because God will sustain our faith. Notice what he says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 9. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with the work of Satan, which is displayed in all kinds of counterfeit miracles, signs, and wonders, and in every sort of evil that deceives those who are perishing. They perish because they refuse to love the truth and be saved. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe a lie, and so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth but have delighted in excuse me, wickedness. Because the Holy Spirit is the deposit that is guaranteeing our salvation, God is addressing to us that any delusion that comes, that because the Holy Spirit is greater in us than he that is in the world, we will not fall prey. It is the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. Though we sin, though we may be... stray away at times that we will be presented because he who began a good work in us is faithful to see it to the day of completion. Notice the next thing. Not only does it it reject the teachings of the, I'm sorry, uh, uh, that it recognizes and understands that which is in you, but it rejects the teachings of the world. Don't listen to bad teachers. Why? Because you need to contend for your faith. But to do that, you need to know the ways of the world. This isn't just be careful of the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witness and the cults out there. But John tells us the kind of theology that is in the world. Notice what he says in 1 John 2, 15 and 17. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of the sinful man, the lust of his eyes and the boasting of what he has and does comes not from the Father but the world. And so you want to know where we fall to false teaching all the time is by turning on the television. And we start listening to what the world says. You say, well, Tim, I don't watch MTV. You know what? I watch Home and Garden every once in a while with my wife, and I have not seen anything that puts such a focus on your house and your landscaping and makes it a god in many ways that people sit there and they watch it. And you know what the response of people that watch Home and Garden I can't wait till I can do that. I want that kind of house. I want that kind of thing. And and I'm not saying that you can't watch those things, but be careful that you don't just assume, well, it doesn't have a worldview. It's just about drywall and shrubs and bushes. Be careful that everything that we take from the world has a bent to it. The spirit of the Antichrist is at work in the world. And so what you watch on TV what you read in the newspapers and in magazines, what you listen to on the radio, every form of media has a bent that's directing you from Christ and to the pursuits of the world. What are they? They're the following. The cravings of the sinful man, the lust of the eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does. False teaching is going to pursue those things. The final thing is, throw it up there, is recognizing the Holy Spirit's teaching. How do we know what is right and what's not? John tells us. Notice what he says, and it's incredible how he puts it. He says, we are from God. Who is? The apostles. That's who he's talking about there. The apostles are from God, and whoever knows God listens to the apostles. How do we listen to the apostles? By studying the Word of God. What is contained in the Word of God? 
The Word of God contains uh, the writings of the prophets and the apostles, the teachings of Jesus Christ. They were carried on by the Holy Spirit to write the very words of God. And so that is our standard. That is where we, just, uh, we are able to uh, judge what is right and what is wrong. I love what Isaiah says. I know you guys are getting restless there. You're turning your Bibles around. Isaiah 8. I haven't closed in prayer yet, I don't think. But Isaiah chapter 8 says the following in 19 and 20. <clears throat> when men tell you to consult mediums and spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Why consult the dead on behalf of the living? To the law and to the testimony, he says, if they do not accept, speak according to this word, they have no light of dawn. Distressed and hungry, they will roam through the world. When they are famished, they will become enraged. And looking upward, they will curse their king and their God. If someone comes and preaches something that you can't find in Scripture, you better start having all your antenna going off and saying, that's not what the apostles taught. There's a call to stand firm. To understand that we are approved unto God. How do we do this? Let me close with this and we're done. I want you to ask this question as you bow your head with me for a moment. This is what I have from A.W. Tozer on how to test the spirits. Number one, how does the teaching affect my relationship with God? Is the teaching that I'm hearing glorifying and magnifying God? Or is he being diminished? Number two, how does the teaching, uh, teaching that I'm listening to affect my attitude towards Jesus Christ? Does it magnify him and give him first place? Or does it subtly shift my focus onto myself or some experience? Number three, how does the teaching that I listen to affect my attitude towards Holy Scripture? Does the teaching come from and agree with that of what I know of the Scriptures? Does it always increase my love for his word? Number four, how does the teaching affect my life? Does it feed itself or does it crucify it? Does it feed pride or humility? Number five, how does the teaching affect my relationship with other Christians? Does it cause me to withdraw, find fault, and exalt myself in superiority? Or does it lead me to genuine love for all that truly know Christ? Number six, how does the teaching affect my relationship to the world? Does it lead me to pursue the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life? Or does it lead me to pursue worldly riches, reputation, and pleasures? Or does it crucify the world to me? And number seven, how does the teaching affect my attitude towards sin? Does it cause me to tolerate sin in my life or to turn from it and grow in holiness? Any teaching that makes holiness more acceptable and sin more intolerable is genuine. In the book, When Unbelief is Right, the final statement of this sermon, Ray Steadman says, God helps, God help us to be unbelievers in error as well as true believers in the only truth. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. And Lord, I pray that through your word, we would be ready for the battle that is waiting for us outside these doors. Whether through media whether through false religions, whether through deceiving spirits, we must be ready for the problem of false teachers. And so, Lord, I pray that you would guard us, that you would protect us through the gift of your Holy Spirit, 
That, Lord, we would recognize and know greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. And, Lord, in doing so, that we would stand strong in troubled times, being ready to give a reason for the hope that we have. And, Lord, that we'd be able to do it clearly and we'd be able to do it through all truth. So, Lord, guide us in your truth. Sanctify us in your truth. Lord, let us become hungry for your truth that is found in your scriptures so that we may follow the foundation that has been laid by the prophets and the apostles and the teaching of your Son, Jesus Christ, that we may show ourselves approved unto God. In Christ's name we pray and all God's people said, Amen.